the Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. No corporate sponsors here. The Peter B. Collins Show is underwritten by great Americans like Carol Pridgen of Blue Lake, California, James Bonaventure of Baldwin, Missouri, and Paul L. Sesser of Durham, California. If you'd like to help, just go to PeterBCollins.com and click on the link that says you can help. Is the war in Afghanistan immoral? Pleased to welcome back to the Peter B. Collins Show the retired auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of Detroit, a progressive Roman Catholic and an outspoken American, Thomas Gummelton. Bishop, welcome to our program today. Thank you very much. Nice to talk with you again. And uh, I-, I wanted to ask you to weigh in on what I think is one of the most important moral questions of our time. And while we see uh, earthly religious groups and leaders diverting their attention to personal sexual behavior and other of the, the, you know, personal moral issues that people confront. I'm really disappointed that we don't hear full-throated religious voices uh, calling on President Obama to end the U.S. war in Afghanistan. And instead, uh, we really see a a broad silence in uh, the community, the religious communities in the United States as this anti-war president, whom so many invested great hope in, uh, has actually escalated the U.S. military presence there, expanded the use of uh, what I consider to be state terrorism in the form of these unmanned drones that attack and kill people, often civilians who are, uh, you know, huddled with the targets uh, that we go after. And I wanted to ask you to weigh in today and tell us your thoughts about uh, the, the real moral underpinnings of what Afghan or what Obama considers to be the good war this uh, 8 year plus uh, operation in Afghanistan I am very much opposed to what we're doing in Afghanistan uh, on uh, the basis of, of moral principles um, and I'm also very disappointed that 
generally in the United States, uh, right now there doesn't seem to be religious leadership that uh, is speaking out against the war, uh, the one in Afghanistan, but also the, the one in Iraq that were uh, evidently planning to um, uh, get out of by the end of the summer. Well, in a major way, we'll still be there after that. But, but I agree. Both of these wars, I, I think, are unjustified wars, if, if there even is such a thing as a justified war, which I don't think there is, but people can argue about that. But no, there, there just is no religious voice that I'm aware of on, on this topic. And uh, that, that just seems very disappointing from many aspects. You, you know, all the killing that we're doing uh, and the loss of our own troops also, but what we're doing to both these countries, plus what it's doing to our economy when we're spending those billions and billions of dollars on war uh, that could be used in the situation we're in the United States where we need to develop job programs, we need to improve our education system, we need to do a lot more for our health care system, and, and so on. It, we're, we're using these uh, our resources for destruction and death and to me that is absolutely wrong and and how is it that uh, we spin this that we're the good guys that we're liberating iraq we're liberating afghanistan and we support uh the brutal uh efforts of israel to put down the palestinian people and we uh deny the goldstone commission report uh, which describes war crimes on both sides of that conflict, but most notably uh, by Israel with its its massive military force against a largely unarmed civilian population. And we are conducting these wars in a manner that uh, sanitizes our role and makes it seem like somehow we're on always the right of justice and goodness. Yes, that's what we claim, of course, but uh, I don't think it's... Um a justified claim, um, we certainly have not improved the situation in Iraq over the last eight years. Uh, everything is worse there than it was before. Uh, the country is devastated. Uh, undoubtedly, hundreds of thousands of people have died even. Uh, well, when you go back to the first Persian Gulf War and, and then the 12 and a half years of sanctions mm-hmm. until the second war, what we've done to Iraq is, is just almost uh, unbelievable, I think. And the, the immorality of it is just hard to measure um, because it has to be the first war of 100,000, 200,000 people killed, 12, um, a million and a half during the sanctions period, what we call excess death. You know, people who would not have died if it had not been for the sanctions, half of those being children. Now this second war is going on eight years, and 100,000, 200,000 people killed, uh, uh, huge numbers, refugees, homeless people stuck in Jordan and Syria, a few being able to get to other countries, to the U.S. or to Norway, Sweden, places like that. And... Uh, but just a handful really can get relocated. The rest are still living as uh, refugees outside their own country, and internal refugees. There's 
two million of them also. Right. The total displaced is at least four and a half, uh, perhaps five million. Yes, and that's out of a population of 25 million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Think of what that would mean in our country if we had the same percentage of people uh, living in internal exile or or being forced to flee the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you... you the, the disruption and the dislocation and so on would be, uh, well, it, it's impossible almost to think of what that would mean for our country. Well, it does mean that for Iraq right now. And um, Afghanistan, this it, same thing seems to be happening, although a good part of that war now is being actually waged in Pakistan, where we have no right to wage war. Uh, you know, many of those drone attacks are across the border in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's like back in the Vietnam War days when we did the so-called incursions into Laos and into Cambodia um, with no right to do that. Mm-hmm. And so the, the war is, is, to me, it's a total loss and a, and a terrible moral stain on our country. And Bishop Gumbleton, let me just ask you to comment on uh, two news developments over the last few days. Uh, in Afghanistan, we are now trying to use some of the techniques we use to, quote-unquote, pacify the resistance in Iraq. And that is we're passing around American cash. And we're trying to put some people to work so that they don't uh, align with the Taliban. We're using local governors and warlords to uh, pass out that money. We did the same thing in Iraq as part of the so-called surge that Bush touted and Obama now embraces as a successful strategy. And we passed out a lot of cash to, in particular, Sunni groups and the so-called Sunni awakening. And after this recent election, we see the unusual development that uh, Muqtada al-Sadr has embraced democracy and asked his followers to vote uh, to try to break the tie between Alawi and Maliki in the presidential campaign there. But uh, over this past weekend, uh, in a targeted killing, 25 Sunnis uh, were basically just executed uh, by uh, reportedly uh, Shiite activists and uh, perhaps those uh, allied with so-called al-Qaeda in Iraq. My point is that we seem to believe that we can buy the loyalty of people against uh, indigenous insurgencies and indigenous uh, uh, groups. And I think that's fundamentally flawed. And just as it is clearly now failing in Iraq, as we hope to, uh, you know, put a lid on things and and get the hell out of there, uh, we're attempting to do the same in Afghanistan. And I believe that these uh, are fundamentally uh, uh, flawed approaches that simply create the illusion for PR purposes that we're gaining ground. And I agree with you. That's exactly what it is. The uh, the money we paid out in Iraq, the killing that you mentioned that happened over the weekend, the 25 people executed uh, in effect, um, to me it just emphasizes the fact that the they're showing, they're trying to show us they're not ready to accept that, uh, a U.S. Uh, occupation, uh, you know, that we came in, uh, or are occupying the country now as an army, but then we tried to get, by through money, pay for people to be on our side. But then the people that supposedly uh, were, were 
developing a democracy for, the Shiites, they don't want that, so they kill the ones that we paid the money to. And so we're, we're not really winning anything there at all. We have both sides, I think, against us, because the ones we paid and are supposedly our supporters, they're, they're killing them. And, and yet the Shiite government that has been in office now uh, is supposed to be our ally. <laughs> but they're killing those who are, our, you know, that we paid to support us. So w- what have we gained? And when all this sorts out, um, and, and if we do leave at the end of the summer with most of our troops departing, um, the Iraqi people will have to settle this themselves. And, and that's what should have happened years ago, that, you know, the country, it, after the first invasion, we destroyed the unity of the country that was kept unified only by force. And um, so that's gone. They kept it together. Now uh, they're going to have to find out a way that they're going to live together. And uh, it may take civil war, but it may not. If they're really confronted with the reality that, we do this ourselves, or it's going to end up in a bloody, bloody civil war, they may start talking to each other and work out an arrangement. And, in fact, I have an Iraqi friend, a priest over there, who told me, this was years ago, that the best thing even then was for the U.S. to get out. He said, we can settle this ourselves. We have to settle it ourselves. And no one else can do it for us. And he also reminded me that, you know, we have 5,000 years of history here, and uh, and we have a culture, and, and all Iraqi people appreciate that and are um, mindful of what, what they have and who they are. And they, they want to be a country that will take its rightful place in the world mm-hmm. and, and, and be proud of who they are. And, and I think that will come together and that they will uh, work it out without a civil war. If a civil war happens, it is something we can't prevent any more than someone could have prevented the civil war that happened in this country, where you know that was our worst uh, war in, in our history as far as the number of people killed. And uh, so the, there may be a civil war, but I think, in fact, they probably will settle things through uh, some kind of negotiation, some kind of coming together in a way that satisfies everybody to some extent. You know, they have to pull together the ethnic groups and the different religious groups and try to become a unified country. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that they, they have the skills and they will have the determination to do that. Well, I, you know, uh, Clinton assembled the, uh, uh, the various factions who were at war in Bosnia uh, at uh, the Air Force Base in Dayton back in the 90s. And I'm proposing that Detroit... Uh, be the center for peace talks because you've got a significant Arab population there. There's a an area there along Woodward that's uh, called Little Iraq or Little Baghdad, if I, if I have it correctly. I've I've been in that uh, area, and uh, you got a lot of great Arabic food there too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and it wouldn't be like uh, you know being trapped in Dayton at an Air Force base. Uh, all humor aside, do do you think that there is a role? for the expatriate communities who are here in the United States to try to forge some sort of uh, coalition government or uh, an approach that avoids a civil war? Well, they certainly could be helpful. I don't know if they could take the lead. 
but they certainly could be helpful uh, because in the Detroit area, we, we do have a mix of uh, people from Iraq. We have many that come from the southern area, many Shiite who fled, especially after the first uh, war ended, and then um, we urged them to rise up and, and never supported them, and President Hussein crushed that rebellion. And at that point, many, many Shiites from the south fled, and, and a good number of them ended up uh, in the Detroit area, but also in the uh, in the north part of the that that's kind of in the southwest part of Detroit. Uh, in the north part of Detroit, we have many other Iraqis who come from the Sunni area and the north area. I mean, from the Baghdad area and the north area, mm-hmm. and and so the, we have those two different groups, and they're different. The, there's many Muslims. There are also many many Christian, Chaldean, um, Catholic. Um, Christians in in the Detroit area, and I, I think they they could be helpful if, if just coming together themselves and then supporting what's going on in their country. Um, but then you'd also have you know we we don't the the Kurdish uh, or the, mm-hmm. the factions from the north and and the Turkmen up there um, that they have to be drawn into the conversation also, and so the the Detroit area doesn't. I have a representation of of Kurds, mm-hmm. yeah, and so uh, you know that it it really has to happen within the country of Iraq itself. But mm-hmm. perhaps the expatriates could be very supportive because you know they do have, even though they're here, they do have family back there, and they they want to try to safeguard the well-being of their families. Bishop Gumbleton, what is your sense on the use of these unmanned drones, these airplanes without pilots? that uh, are used to strike at targets that are often devised from intelligence on the ground uh, that could be faulty. Uh, and uh, these are done by remote control. The actual uh, controls are at air bases in the United States. Um, and uh, one guest on our program recently, Professor Bo Grosskup, has written a book called Strategic Terror. And he traces the history of aerial warfare and concludes that when it's used uh, in areas where populations are known to uh, be largely civilian, that it is a form of state-sponsored terrorism. And I'd like to get your views on that. I am totally opposed to, to using uh, drones as, as part of our weapon system. Um, I, I think, you know, first of all, it's so easy for the, the intelligence to be wrong uh, it's either collected on, on the ground, and sometimes people are um, marked, accused <laughs> of being the the uh, enemy. But it's some kind of a dispute going on among people themselves, and they identify people they just want to be rid of. Mm-hmm. And um, but also, some of that intelligence comes from the air, and it can be even more faulty than I think. Um, trying to distinguish, you know, if you're looking for one particular person you're trying to kill, um, the uh, you could easily misidentify or um, they're bound to be together with other people and then all the other people are killed at the same time. Um, and uh, it, uh, so it's a very faulty kind of uh, warfare, I think, even... It's certainly not battlefield warfare where you know you're fighting an army against an army or uh, if it was aerial warfare, you know, 
one air force against another. This this is um, using aerial bombardment to destroy people on the ground. Many times there'll be civilian people who are just in the wrong place, and when when it happens, <clears throat> and uh, and then also many of the drone attacks have been under the CIA um, rather than under the military uh, direction of the military. And um, th- there's far less control over what the CIA does than, you know, uh, General McChrystal is trying to lessen the civilian casualties, but he doesn't have control over what the CIA does. Now, supposedly our um, military leaders have begun to take more control over that, but I'm not sure it's really happened. And, and does so, it does it also project a calculation that the life of an American is somehow worth far more than that of one of our targets, and I, I won't color that with uh, any generalizations, but you know what I'm talking about. Well, yeah, certainly when, you know, we, we safeguard our own people by having them carry out this warfare from someplace in our own country where they, they, they can't be injured in any way. I mean, it does seem like a terrorist attack and in, in a certain analogous to one, um, and... Um, but then also, uh, I've read, and, and I think it's well-founded, uh, about the fact that it's very hurtful to those who are waging this kind of warfare. Psychologically, it becomes very damaging. That, you know, they, they uh, sit at a desk, so to speak, and are in front of a computer screen and push a few buttons and then people are killed. They go home and have supper at the end of a day's work. Well, that reminds me of the, the the people in the concentration camps who ran those camps and then, you know, had normal family life at the end of the day. Um, the, the Gestapo who were running the death camps, you know, they and so it's such a uh, disconnected life. You know, you're doing one horrible thing for eight hours a day and then you try to have a normal life. Well. The, the disconnection becomes psychologically damaging after a while. And and there seems to be really good foundation for saying that based on psychological studies of people who are engaged in this kind of warfare. Mm-hmm. I've been pretty critical of President Obama on many fronts, and I've found a, a moment here where I can uh, lavish him with praise, and I wanted to get your thoughts, because uh, this week he is flying to Prague, where he will sign an agreement with the Russians, And next week, he is hosting a nuclear uh, disarmament uh, uh, conference in Washington. And I'm very pleased to see him, while I'm critical of, uh, in particular, his militarism in Afghanistan, uh, I'm pleased to see him following through on part of his long-term vision, which is to reduce the threat of a nuclear exchange. Do you have a comment on that, Bishop Gumbleton? Well, I hope... (laughs) To not disillusion you, but I don't have much confidence in what's happening. Hmm. Um, are you still there? Yes, go ahead. Oh, um, first of all, there's there's major flaws in 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 the uh, uh, the agreement that that's going to be signed. the um, The numbers are are not really what they seem to be because they count as one weapon, an airplane that might be carrying a half a dozen weapons. Well, when, when they say they're going to reduce from 2,200 to 1,550, it's really not true. It's not, you know, they're going to reduce the number of airplanes, maybe, but 
they don't count the individual weapons or, or a submarine, the individual weapons. Mm-hmm. So those numbers are, are wrong. And But even 1,550, if it were accurate, would never be uh, make the world safe in any way. And then what's even worse is the Ru- Russians now have insisted that they retain the right to withdraw from that treaty anytime they wish um, because we refuse to stop the development of what we call the missile defense system. And, and Russia and China are not fooled by that system at all. And that's why, you know, they almost, when uh, uh, Medvedev and, and Obama talked a week or so ago on the phone, the whole thing almost fell apart because he was insisting we get rid of the missile defense system. Obama refused to do that. He said, I thought we had an agreement. And then so Medvedev backed off, but only with the uh, uh, condition that they could withdraw at any point. And, and the reason why this, it, they're so adamant against these missiles um, uh, that are being placed close to their borders is that that defense, it's called defense, uh, missile defense, mm-hmm. but it's really part of uh, the first strike system that we have always tried to achieve. And first strike means that we can destroy their weapons before they can be used. And... Um, and both sides over the decades have been trying to establish that superiority. Well, with a defense, missile defense system close to Russia or close to China, because we're doing it, we're concerned about China too, not as much, but certainly to some extent, if we decide we want to attack their weapons so that they could not retaliate, mm-hmm. we're probably not going to destroy all their weapons. But a missile defense system could destroy the ones that are left. If they have time to, to launch some of them, our missile defense system would destroy them. And so we would be free from being attacked in retaliation. And so then that, that's what a first strike system is. And as long as we insist on those, that missile defense system, Russia says we don't want that, and if they see us continuing to get superiority that way, they will withdraw, and they'll build up their offensive weapons once more so that we could not destroy so many of them that they could not retaliate. Mm-hmm. And so this whole thing is just is dishonest. And and I, I think it'll, it'll give people a false sense that we're making progress. And, and I don't think we're making progress. Well, I take your points very seriously. And uh, I, I guess for me, it is uh, an intent to try to get a handle on the nuclear proliferation. Right, and, well, and certainly, and I agree with that, but why, why can't we be honest about it? Mm-hmm. Why do we insist on this missile defense? Well, and, and we're disingenuous or hypocritical, depending on your point of view, uh, because we have this foreign policy that is focused on preventing Iran from even developing a nuclear yeah, weapon. Exactly. Well, and we, we permit Israel to uh, have an arsenal, Yes. And we act as if it doesn't. And so there's a, there's a lot of duplicity um, that uh, riddles the whole discussion of nuclear and, and arms. And I certainly would not say for President Obama not to go to Prague. You know, to me, it, it at least gets people thinking in the right direction that we have to get rid of the weapons. But I, I insist that we got to keep alert to what's truly happening mm-hmm. so that as we continue to push in this direction of abolishing nuclear weapons, that, that we do it 
totally and and not you know in a half-hearted or or um, a dishonest way. Bishop Gumbleton, I also wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the controversies that are uh, affecting the Catholic Church right now. We saw a pretty sordid Good Friday and Easter weekend in Rome as the officials are really uh, closing ranks to defend the Pope. And there appears to be a real need for the Sacrament of Reconciliation here to be embraced by the Catholic hierarchy. And it seems to me that they're using PR tactics and damage control instead of uh, using a, a Christ-like approach to the obvious sins and crimes that have been committed and covered up, and the clear role that uh, the, the Pope and uh, uh, Cardinal Levada and others have had in uh, trying to suppress and ignore the uh, pedophilia scandal in the United States. Yes, <laughs> that, that's what's happening, and it, it will not work. People in the United States, uh, in huge numbers, and it's going to increase, are, are losing all confidence in the hierarchy of this country. Now they're losing confidence in, in, in the Pope. Um, and, and so the moral credibility of the bishops in the United States, well, throughout Europe, and, and, and the moral credibility of the Pope is disappearing. Uh, they're, they, they're, you, you can't keep doing what we're doing uh, and expect that people are going to look upon you as religious or moral leaders. And so when our religious leaders act this way, um, people are reacting against that and will simply dismiss them as moral leaders. And and that's a tragedy. Um, and the only way to... to Resolve it is, is to be honest. And yes, we did make mistakes. And, you know, and I get so frustrated every time, you know, like, um, uh, who was it? The uh, I think it was the Franciscan who gave the sermon at, uh, on Good Friday. Yes. Uh-huh. He said, well, if I did offend anybody, then I apologize. Well, of course you offended somebody. Why if I offended somebody? I mean, admit that you did and then ask for forgiveness. But you know, this idea, that, or, or when they say, well, bad things happened. Well, yes, and somebody was responsible. Let's say who that responsible person is and, and hold that person accountable. And, and that's, we're, we're not doing that. You know, the Archbishop of Dublin, Archbishop Martin in, in Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, has certainly tried to be very forthright and honest about it. And the other bishops of Ireland are very upset with him because he's saying we did wrong and we need to correct it. And uh, and bishops move people around, and they should not have. And we have to hold them accountable. Well, you know, he's under great attack for saying that. And um, but he's right. And and the same thing, you know. And when people say, you know, the pope, we we, we have to protect the pope. Well, from what? If he made a mistake, he made a mistake, and he has to be held accountable like any other person. And. And, you know, the fact that he's Pope, you know, people should remember that back in the beginning, um, if you look at the letter of St. Paul that he wrote to the people in Galatia, you find Paul saying in there, I with, withstood Peter to his face because Peter was in the wrong. And, and Peter had to admit he was in the wrong. See, there was a big controversy going on over of whether um, Jewish people could be accepted into the church without... Uh, uh, I mean, Gentiles could be accepted into the church without 
becoming circumcised and, in effect, becoming a Jew first. And Paul was on one side, Peter on the other side, and Peter finally had to admit, I was wrong. Well, okay, and the church moved on and became strong and began to grow. But so the Pope can be wrong, and, and that's not something that we have to be worried about or upset about. Pope is a human being. And so that's, we need to be honest and to, to say where we've been wrong and not to protect people who have done this wrong. And Bishop Gumbleton, what I see is this uh, contradiction that on the one hand, the Catholic Church has become more involved in secular politics. We saw them join with the Mormons to pass Proposition 8 uh, to deny same-sex couples the civil right to marriage. It's not a religious issue, it's a civil right. And on the other hand, we see the Church in what I can only describe as pure arrogance, uh, essentially declaring that it's above the law when it comes to priests who uh, molested young children, uh, that uh, they have the right to keep this out of uh, the secular criminal process. But in fact, uh, they have been participants and architects of a huge criminal cover-up that we would call obstruction of justice. And somehow they have the divine right to choose when they participate in, in secular government activities and when they decide to pass? No, they, they don't have that right. And, uh, and that's a mistake. Thank goodness that in Europe, uh, I, the, the European bishops, for the most part now, are saying, in any of these cases, go directly to the civil authorities. Don't bring it to the church. You, know, you go to the civil authorities, and because it's a crime. Now, a crime can also be a sin. And so then, at some point, if the person wants to be forgiven the sin, um, that has to be something between that person and God, of course. But it, when it's a crime, it should be handled by the civil authorities. And for too long, the church uh, and many, in some instances, the civil authorities cooperated with this. The church kept these kinds of things uh, only in the, what we would call the internal forum and, uh, you know, sacramental form of confession. It's a sin. But it, it's a sin plus a, a uh, um, uh, civil uh, crime, and mm-hmm. so it has to be dealt with in the civil courts and, and according to, to civil law, and uh, not be kept only for um, within the church. And and that the, the pope should say this, and uh, the bishops of this country should say this, and more in this country too. It's now they're more forthright in saying. It has to go to the civil authority, although they won't let any back cases be handled uh, by opening up the statute of limitations to give some victims a chance for justice finally. But but now for current cases and future, in the United States, the bishops are uh, putting them into the court system primarily. But, and, and isn't there a risk here that uh, we would see a lot of high-ranking church officials uh, at, at least brought to court. I, I don't want to uh, prejudge uh, what the proceedings might lead to. Uh, but uh, Leveda, who took Ratzinger's job of the Pope as uh, head of the Congregation of the Propagation of the Faith, is that right? No, it's a defense of the faith. Oh, defense of, thank you. Uh, he's the former Archbishop of San Francisco, and uh, when he was here, he presided over a series of cover-ups that have led to large cash settlements to the victims. 
the uh, cardinal in Los Angeles has similar problems where he presided over cover-ups in the past, and uh, they've papered over them with uh, with these huge cash settlements to victims and uh, others. dollars worth. Yes. And, and so uh, doesn't this risk bringing down uh, huge parts of the, the church hierarchy, and is that one reason why they're staging such a massive defense? Uh, well, first of all, I, I don't think um, when he was Archbishop of San Francisco that Archbishop Cardinal Levada did a lot of cover-up. I never have heard that before. Well, there's there's a priest named Flynn who was both uh, a con man, he stole money, embezzled money, and uh, was also a, uh, a pedophile. And he was moved around, and it was covered up, and Levada was, was a part of that. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm not aware of it. But mm-hmm. at any rate, I, you know, it, it happened on a much, much larger scale in other places. And, 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 and that should not be tolerated. Um, the, the bishops who... As in Ireland, again, Archbishop Martin over there is trying to hold those bishops accountable. And um, four of them have at least offered their resignation, even though Pope only took one, but he may accept the others too. And that's what should happen. If if a bishop has done uh, cover-up or has uh, been involved in obstruction of justice or something, yes, that bishop should be uh, held accountable for that. And in some proper way... Um, he would take responsibility for what he did, and um, the, the civil authorities would do what they have to do or what they're charged to do. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I, I just don't, I don't know how all of this would work out. But it certainly, I know, is wrong to continue to keep uh, a cover-up going or to allow obstruction of justice to continue. People have a right to justice, and no one has a right to obstruct it. Bishop Gumbleton, I referenced uh, the Sacrament of Confession, also known as Reconciliation. And I have a friend who's not a Catholic, but a devout Christian, who promotes the use of restorative justice uh, in criminal settings, where she tries to bring offenders together with the victims they harmed and uh, seek a true uh, personal reconciliation. Do you see a need for some sort of a public process uh, that uh, would permit the church leaders, and those who have offended uh, the individual priests to come together with their victims to seek some form of of true uh, resolution and possible absolution. Yes, I, that, that would be like the Truth Commission that Archbishop Tutu did in South Africa. Uh, and that was a way to, to make sure that after the changeover, you know, after Nelson Mandela won the presidency, and apartheid was ended, uh, so that there would not be uh, you know, just horrendous uh, violence where the people who had been uh, treated so unjustly over many, many years, decades, would retaliate through the truth commissions where the people, the, those perpetrators had to be in front of the victim and say, yes, I did this, this, and this, and express some kind of sorrow. And, of course, they, they were guaranteed amnesty. They would not then be taken into court. And, and that, I, I think, it actually prevented, certainly prevented, uh, a huge uh, violence, a terrible violence in South Africa after the overthrow of apartheid. And that something similar like, similar to that could should happen or, or 
Uh, I would hope it could happen. And uh, But the problem that I discover is that uh, it, the, so many of the perpetrators seem to be in deep denial. And I've heard a psychologist speak about this. In fact, to a group of bishops she was speaking, saying that there is this deep denial that the priest, and I, no priests that clearly are guilty, and yet they they say they're not. I mean, and and you, I can't believe they're just lying um, deliberately, or at least it's hard to believe that. And so it, psychologically, it seems to me they have blocked out some of what they've done. And so I don't know if it would work, unless you can get the perpetrators to say, yes, I did it. But so far, you know, even those priests who have been what we call defrocked, they will still say, I did not do it, and I've been treated unjustly. And there are many people who believe that, and yet the evidence is there. So I, I don't know if that would work. I wish it would, and I think it should be given a try. And in, in those instances where the priest could bring himself to say, yes, I did it, um, then the, the victim could forgive, and there could be reconciliation. Mm-hmm. But until the perpetrator is, is able to say that, you, you can't do the restorative justice. Well, Bishop Gumbleton, I really appreciate your willingness to speak out on these important issues, and uh, I thank you for your service over the years. Uh, you are one of the most uh, uh, visible, progressive Catholics in the country, and uh, I, I'm grateful for that because over the past uh, 15 or 20 years, uh, things have become so much more conservative, and uh, the failure of the the church as an organization to challenge the biggest moral issues of our time, which are these wars, uh, is something that uh, causes me a lot of, of pain. And I, I appreciate that you uh, are not afraid to challenge uh, the leadership and uh, speak uh, in in the way that you do, which I think is very much consistent with uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ. Okay, well, thank you very much, Peter. And we'll keep working together to make good things happen. Thank you, Bishop Gumbleton. Great to talk with you again. Okay, you're welcome. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show, and it's time for your humble host to admit a boneheaded move. I had hoped today to bring you an interview with Congressman Joe Sestak. He's a Democrat, a retired Navy admiral who is running against Arlen Specter, the most recent convert to the Democratic Party, for the Senate seat in Pennsylvania. The primary is in May. And on April 1st, and maybe it was my April Fool's moment, I had an opportunity to talk to Joe Sestak via cell phone from the campaign trail. And that's what I had hoped to bring you today. But Windows decided to update my computer without my permission. It restarted the computer. I hadn't saved the Joe Sestak interview, and it is lost. So first, I extend to Congressman Sestak and his staff my humble apology. Excuse me. 
And I have an opportunity to make it up to Joe Sestak because uh, this coming Friday, the 9th of April, I will be sitting in for Tom Hartman on his national broadcast, and I'm going to invite the congressman to join me then. But I would like to recap what we discussed uh, because I think Sestak is a very interesting man who uh, is giving up his congressional seat to challenge this Arlen Specter convert, and he's much more progressive than Arlen Specter will ever be, even when he acts as democratic as he possibly can. We talked about a number of issues, and one that I have been very passionate about that listeners here know about is that I commented on the, the district court decision of Judge Von Walker in San Francisco, which says that the wiretapping conducted by the Bush administration was illegal if it was done without a warrant. And this is the case of the Al-Haramain charity. And we discussed that with John Eisenberg in podcast number 118. I recommend that if you haven't had the opportunity to listen to that. And Joe Sestak uh, agreed that we need to work to restore our Fourth Amendment rights. And he permitted me to lobby him a little bit on that issue. We also talked about two cases of whistleblowers, one in Pennsylvania where union nurses have walked out from Temple University Hospital because uh, one has been uh, sanctioned for blowing the whistle on wrongdoing, and I don't know the specifics, whether it was medical malpractice or policy issues that occurred in that hospital. And I took the opportunity to further lobby the congressman on Senate Bill 372, which is written as a reform of whistleblower legislation, but it doesn't provide coverage for national security whistleblowers, and we need them more than ever to be able to come forward and tell the truth. And it actually makes things worse uh, for certain categories of whistleblowers, like at the FBI, where they now have some semblance of protection. And uh, while Mr. Sestak didn't seem to know the specifics of the bill in Joe Lieberman's Homeland Security Committee, he did promise to take a look at it and uh, made a statement in uh, general support of whistleblowers. We also talked about the Obama health care health uh, insurance reform. And uh, while uh, Joe Sestak and I aren't in complete agreement because uh, I was uh, supporting single payer and am not that excited about the package that ultimately emerged, he and I did agree that there is one interesting aspect that came out of the Senate portion of the bill which is that there is a mechanism to require insurance companies to spend 80 to 85% of premium income on benefits for those premium payers. And this is the closest thing that comes to providing some sort of cost control and eliminating the huge profit-taking of these for-profit insurance companies. And uh, Sestak said I was the first person who's ever asked him about that, And, of course, this has been under discussion and uh, debated in the Senate uh, as part of the health care reform for several months now. So I found that interesting. And finally, we talked about uh, Afghanistan, where uh, former Admiral Sestak uh, in general does support President Obama. He acknowledged uh, quite candidly that the Karzai government is corrupt, that the election was fraudulent, and that uh, we don't really have much hope of, uh, of building on an Afghan infrastructure of the central government. We can't trust that the army won't be riddled with uh, Taliban sympathizers and actual uh, covert members. And so he shifted the conversation to Pakistan, where uh, he and I are in some agreement. 
that Pakistan is a very critical front and that uh, we need to be paying close attention to that. Sestak seems to argue that uh, Afghanistan is our forward base for dealing with uh, Pakistan, and he cited some of the recent gains where the uh, government and military of Pakistan have been uh, much more supportive and forthcoming of American policies in that region. So I once again apologize to the congressman for uh, uh, screwing up the technical side and losing that interview. I had promised to bring it to my listeners today in a post on uh, my website uh, homepage blog, and it's just one of those things that happened, and I I don't uh, feel that it's uh, worthwhile to track Joe Sestak down and make him do the interview again. But if you're hearing this early in the week on Friday, the uh, 9th of April, uh, I will invite Joe Sestak to join me on the National Tom Hartman radio program. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer for you, the listeners of the Peter B. Collins Show. President Obama is following through on a campaign pledge. For reduction in nuclear arms arsenals. And our transition music is from the Australian band Midnight Oil. It's called Put Down That Weapon. And the leader of that band, Peter Garrett, is now the Environment Minister for the government in Australia. John Isaacs joins us today, Executive Director of the Council for a Livable World. And uh, his organization is also linked to the Arms Control Center in Washington, D.C. John, welcome to our program. Delighted to be with you today. Good to talk with you. And as I referenced in the intro, one of President Obama's uh, uh, focuses when he was in the U.S. Senate and one of the issues that he articulated as very important to him during the campaign in 2008 is getting a handle on nuclear weapons, both uh, the so-called loose nukes uh, that could be a problem uh, used by terrorists and also trying to reduce the arsenals of the United States and the former Soviet Union. And he's following through on that. Uh, He will be in Prague this week to sign an agreement, a new START agreement, with the uh, Russian leader, uh, Medvedev. And then he's hosting a conference in Washington in the following week uh, focused on on nuclear arms issues. Tell me uh, what the focus is of your organization and how you view these developments uh, under President Obama? Uh, certainly. Uh, Council for the World was founded in 1962 to focus on weapons of mass destruction issues, particularly nuclear weapons, as well as chemical and biological. And from the beginning, we have focused on trying to get some controls over those nuclear weapons. Back in the 60s, was the height of the Cold War, and around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the world almost uh, blew itself up. Uh, and we've been supportive of efforts to get some controls and then reduce, and then we hope eventually eliminate nuclear weapons. Uh, so what what President Obama has been doing is really music for, for our 
years. In fact, uh, a year ago in Prague, where the president's going this week, as you pointed out, the president really launched this effort uh, consistent with his, his campaign, his Senate career, where he talked about a world uh, free of nuclear weapons. But at the same time, he talked about a number of, shall we say, interim steps to implement that vision, to move towards that vision. And one is to start this uh, signing of an agreement in Prague to reduce nuclear weapons, at least the limits, by about 30% as deployed strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, that's important because it, to, to reduce the number of nuclear weapons around the globe, I, I should point out that the United States and Russia still have about 23,000 nuclear weapons, 95% of the 23,000 nuclear weapons across the globe, and each of these nuclear weapons uh, is larger, almost all of them larger than those that destroyed Hiroshima mm-hmm. and Nagasaki. So one, he's trying to get the, the, the reductions signed this week and eventually through the United States Senate. Two, next week, there's a nuclear summit, as you point out, with over 40 countries participating in Washington, D.C., talk about nuclear security, trying to prevent uh, the spread of nuclear weapons, and particularly to keep nuclear weapons out of the hands of terrorist groups that uh, operate around the globe. And then the next month, there's a nuclear nonproliferation treaty review conference in New York, where a treaty signed by over 180 countries is going to be discussed and reviewed and see where we are in that. And let me say one more thing. There's a a, a review of nuclear policy that's been underway for about a year by the Obama administration, and that apparently is going to be released in the next uh, day or so. So a lot of an awful lot is happening. This is a big month in terms of following through in the commitments uh, that the president laid out. We're, we're delighted to see that. Now, uh, in terms of this new START agreement, uh, I certainly am in favor of uh, any step forward to reduce uh, arsenals and to reduce the overall threat. Um, but are we counting honestly and cleanly, uh, or is this more of a, a PR gesture? Uh, because some critics, for example, say that, well, they're, they're not really counting all the weapons. Uh, a submarine is counted as one, even if it has uh, a dozen warheads uh, uh, in, its, uh, in its tubes, and an aircraft is being counted for one when it may have multiple uh, uh, bombs or nuclear missiles on board, some of which may have multiple warheads. The, the, that, that is partially accurate, but not totally accurate. Um, the, the submarines are being count, counted for the number of warheads on each missile and each missile on each submarine. That, it's not, there's not a counting rule that you describe on submarines. There is such a counting rule on bombers, and it's true. A bomber is counted as having only one weapon, whether it has one weapon or ten weapons or twenty weapons. But in point of fact, throughout the uh, other negotiations, there have always been separate counting rules for, for bomb, nuclear bombers. And I think the theory on that is the long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles, the missiles that could take a nuclear weapon from uh, Montana, let's say, to Russia, or the submarine-launched uh, nuclear missiles, again, sending nuclear weapons long distance, those are weapons where the bombs the, the, can hit targets in 30, 40 minutes, can't be recalled, and are particularly dangerous. The bombs uh, that would be loaded on bombers actually are not loaded on bombers. They're sitting in, in the storage waiting to be put on a bomber at appropriate time. And I, I know there's some funny counting rules, but there still will be some important reductions in nuclear weapons, not certainly as much as we'd like to see, but a step forward. And there also will be important rules of the road in terms of transparency and verification. And again, we hope that this agreement leads to much further reductions down the road. 
And are the, the I, I almost called them Soviets, are, are the Russians counting using the same system that we are? Is, is there relative yes. transparency from state to state? Absolutely. We don't know the exact uh, fine details of the treaty because that won't be released perhaps until the treaty is signed or perhaps until it's sent to the Senate in another month or so. But yes, there are. There, there will. Uh, let me go back in history a little bit. Uh, when President George W. Bush was in office, he did sign a treaty with Russia that wasn't much of a treaty. It was only three pages long, and there was not a consistent counting rule for Russia in the United States. There was no verification. It was hard to determine what each country would do. This treaty will have parallel counting rules. It will have verification procedures, and it will have a way for the Russians to know what the U.S. is doing, the U.S. to know what the Russians are doing. When Ronald Reagan was president a few decades ago, he used the term trust but verify. And although the United States and the Soviet Union, now Russia, have come a long way, there's still an element of trust that uh, is lacking that needs to be verified by these agreements. And uh, as we look at this uh, going forward, um, can we trust Medvedev? Does he really have the authority... Uh, Putin is really running the country, even though he doesn't carry the uh, the title anymore. Um, should we actually have Putin at the table as well? This is a treaty signed by the United States of America and the Russian Federation. It's not, although the, the actual signers are o- Obama and the Russian president, it's between two countries. I wouldn't separate Putin and Medvedev. I think they are in accord on this treaty. I don't think that president goes too far afield from where the prime minister wants to go. I'm not, I don't think that's a major concern. This is a treaty for two countries, and the 10-year treaty will lay out what the two countries need to do. And so I don't think uh, trying to put separation between the prime minister and the president of Russia uh, makes much sense in this one. Okay. Now, uh, what about the missile defense issues? Because it appears that uh, this almost fell apart uh, a week and a half ago, and there was a phone conversation between Obama and, v- and Medvedev, and uh, they came to some uh, resolution. But as I understand it, uh, we have not completely stood down uh, from the plan to deploy the missile defense system uh, in the Czech Republic and Poland, and that uh, Russia sees this as a not only a political insult, but also as a strategic risk. There are some major issues that, that, uh, about which the United States and Russia uh, disagree, and missile defense is certainly one of those issues, and it's been a disagreement over many years. Um, the, the George W. Bush administration had planned to put a missile defense system in Poland and the Czech Republic. The Obama administration actually has gone in a different direction with a, which is, with a different system, and the Russians were initially happy about that, um, but there, and I don't think there's any real fear in the Russians about the present plan for U.S. missile defense, but there is concern over the long term. So while the Russians tried to get some limits on missile defense in this treaty, there are, in fact, no such limits. The United States is totally unconstrained on missile defense. Uh, that may be a bad thing or a good thing, but that's the reality. But I think the, when the agreement is signed, the Russians <clears throat> will issue what's called a unilateral statement to say, if they feel in the future U.S. missile defense, in fact, has uh, threatened the Russian det- nuclear deterrence, if they feel our missile defense system will grow so large it could threaten what their own nuclear force, then they might withdraw from this treaty that's about to be signed on April 8th. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, there are no limits on missile defense. And I think part of the problem is that the Russians were blindsided when the story leaked about a month and a half ago that the U.S. was going to deploy some missile defenses in Romania. And the way the Russians found out about that is in, in, by reading newspaper, not by being mm. informed by the U.S. government. And that was a way that irritated them, and they're not happy with uh, missile defenses in their former satellites either. And and do you take this at face value? Uh, because I think one of the Russian fears is that we'll call it missile defense, but it will also it will either uh, also be or alternatively be uh, a forward nuclear base for the United States. No, I don't think anyone's really thinking there'll be uh, uh, nuclear weapons stationed in Poland or Czech Republic or Romania or any other country. In fact, aside from probably a couple hundred nuclear weapons in countries like Germany and Turkey and Netherlands, the United States doesn't deploy nuclear weapons abroad. So I don't think that's a concern for the Russians, and it's not a concern for the United States. And, and in fact, there's no reason to deploy even those 200 nuclear weapons in Germany, uh, Turkey, uh, Netherlands, and a couple other countries. Uh, so that's, that's not an issue. Uh, I would be concerned if we were deploying nuclear weapons all over the globe, and I think... Uh, in fact, the United States is probably moving the other direction, and we'll begin withdrawing those last 200 weapons back to the United States. Now, John Isaacs, what is your take on the United States Senate's view of the new START treaty? And the president can sign it. He'll have some options about when to submit it for ratification, and he might wait for the new Senate to uh, take, uh, take office next year. Uh, hoping that uh, there are more reasonable voices. Uh, but as I count it right now, and, and you do need two-thirds to pass a treaty, this is not just the 60-vote cloture issue. Um, are there 67 votes in the Senate for a new uh, nuclear reduction treaty? There aren't uh, 67 votes today, but I strongly suspect there will be uh, 67 votes and probably well over 67 votes either later this year or early next year. I think the Obama administration plans to submit the treaty to the Senate uh, by the end of April or early May and hopes to have a vote uh, by the end of the year. In fact, it's said as much. It's perhaps possible the vote will occur in a lame duck session after the election while this uh, this Senate still uh, is in session. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, nuclear arms control, nuclear reductions have have been very popular. Um, The treaty that uh, President George uh, Herbert Walker Bush signed, was endorsed, was voted on with more than 90 votes in the Senate, including most Republicans. Similarly, the George W. Bush Treaty of 2002, again, over 90 votes, unanimous vote, and with Republicans voting for it. And I think there's a, a degree of optimism that this treaty will pass, too. The major concern is whether Russians will, as they have said after the health care uh, vote, close down the Senate and not, not cooperate with Democrats anymore in order to deny any more victories for President Obama. But I, I think I think ultimately the treaty will pass and will pass by a large margin. There will be a lot of toing and froing as the Senate likes to do. It won't be very fast action. There'll be votes on some conditions or resolutions when the treaty is actually considered by the Senate. But I think ultimately the treaty the Senate will approve the treaty by well above the two thirds majority required in the Constitution. Nevertheless, um, it does seem to make sense to support candidates for the Senate uh, who would embrace a treaty like this and more progressive views of um, our military posture. 
And the interview preceding you on this podcast, John, is with uh, Joe Sestak, who is a congressman from Pennsylvania, candidate in the Senate primary in May uh, against Arlen Specter, the newest member of the Democratic Party from the Senate. <laughs> and uh, uh, I understand that uh, your organization, Council for a Livable World, has uh, endorsed Mr. Sestak. Indeed we have. <clears throat> and we, as we look to, to endorse candidates for the two, November 2010 election, we do consider what their positions are, both on the whether they'll vote for this new, new START nu- nuclear reductions treaty, but also vote for what's called the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, a treaty signed in 1997 which would bar all nuclear weapons tests across the globe. Uh, Congressman Sestak has committed on those two issues, and we're quite enthusiastically supporting him in his primary against Senator Specter. We're also supporting people like Lee Fisher, Senate Cannon, Ohio, and Cal, uh, Chris Coons in Delaware, and Cal Cunningham in North Carolina, we have questionnaires we send to all candidates we are considering supporting and then interview them. And these questions, will you vote for a START treaty? Will you vote for a test ban treaty? They're very uh, among the most important questions we ask. And who are some of the others that you've endorsed, uh, in case my listeners around the country want to be aware of that? Sure. The ones I mentioned, and as I said, Fisher in Ohio, Coons in, in Delaware, Cunningham in North Carolina, Sestak in Pennsylvania. Also, and I may forget one or two, um, uh, Robin Carnahan, who's running for Senate in Missouri. We've endorsed two incumbents who may be having some problems, Barbara Boxer in California, as well as Russ Feingold in uh, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, Michael Bennett, who was appointed senator when uh, Senator Salazar entered the Obama administration cabinet, and he's up for election in November, too. So those are some of the candidates. We're looking at other races to, to consider endorsements as well. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Can I say one thing? When we were founded in 1962, from the beginning we have been involved in politics. And our founder, Leo Szilard, the Hungarian emigre, said that there are various ways to influence policy in this country, and one of the important ways is through politics. And that means, among other things, electing people to the United States Senate and the House who will be supportive of arms control. And so we've been, we've been supporting candidates in both the Senate and the House since 1962, and certainly are actively involved in this November election. And if people want to support you in supporting those candidates, they can go to your website at livableworld.org. Right, www.livableworld.org. There's certainly information about the Nuclear Reductions Treaty and the Test Ban Treaty and the other issues we've been talking about, but there are also a list of our endorsements, which people can read and decide for themselves whether they want to help these candidates. And as, as we say, if you contribute to, let's say, uh, Robin Carnahan, Missouri, or, or Congressman Hose in New Hampshire, or I forgot, uh, 100% of the contributions goes directly to the candidate. We don't take anything out for salaries or mm-hmm. upkeep or electricity. So if people want to endorse candidates, whether they live in Montana or they live in uh, Georgia, they can still help candidates across the country, and we encourage them to do that through our website, www.livableworld.org. And John Isaacs, if I can uh, explore one final area with you today, that is the policy toward Iran and the effort by the Obama administration now to move with uh, deeper sanctions against the Revolutionary Guard and the central government itself. And uh, with the new START talk with Russia, uh, is there any uh, sidebar agreement regarding Iran 
that could bring uh, more pressure on the Iranians, because after all, the French, the Russians, and notably the Chinese, have resisted the idea of further sanctions against Iran. I don't know that there's been a sidebar agreement between Russia and the United States and the United States on sanctions on Iran, but clearly there have been sidebar talks. And the indications we've heard from the Obama administration is that the Russians are more amenable to consider and vote for sanctions in the United Nations against Iran. And there are some indications that the Chinese may be a little bit more favorable than they were a few weeks ago. Uh, it's the United Nations Security Council that will have to approve these sanctions. Both China and Russia are part of the Security Council, and so their views have to be taken into consideration. Uh, one of the goals of this, these negotiations for the New START agreement, as expressed by both Vice President Biden and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, was to reset U.S.-Russian relations. And that's important uh, because there are all sorts of areas in which the U.S. and the Russians have to cooperate, including Iran and North Korean nuclear aspirations, including terrorism, including proliferation. So there are indications that uh, the Russians and the U.S. are drawing closer in a common position on Iran sanctions and that something could be voted in the Security Council in the next couple of weeks. So, John Isaacs, is this a, a special season? You've been doing this work for some length of time. Your organization goes way back to the Cold War in the 1960s. And it seems that there is an alignment here. Um, the Plowshares Fund in San Francisco recently held an event to announce that an interesting quartet, including former Secretary of State Schultz, uh, former Defense Secretaries Sam Nunn, well, Nunn wasn't Defense Secretary, but he was uh, Chair of the Armed Services Committee in the Senate, uh, Defense Secretary Bill Perry from the Clinton administration, and a name that uh, uh, <laughs> doesn't uh, convince a lot of people in the progressive community, Henry Kissinger. Uh, they have uh, uh, been speaking out as a group, saying that this is a moment in time and that they have put aside some of their political differences to uh, work for nuclear disarmament. So ha have we come to a period where you think that it's not only critical, but also that there are significant opportunities? Absolutely. In fact, we're, we're coming, uh, these, these developments by the four statesmen you point out, by the President of the United States, by all the, the treaties and the nuclear sub summits, do provide an unprecedented opportunity for the last 20 years. Uh, there was significant movement at the end of the Cold War when the first uh, President Bush was in office to reduce the nuclear dangers. But unfortunately, President Clinton uh, was focused on domestic issues and not too much on nuclear issues. And President George uh, W. Bush was not interested in arms control at all. So we do have a, a rebirth of interest, a rebirth of activism, a rebirth of opportunity. A lot of it was led, as you say, by the four statesmen. Kissinger, who may not be my favorite uh, spokesperson or diplomat, Schultz, uh, Nunn, and Perry, have kind of made the talk of ridding the world of nuclear weapons respectable. It's no longer a bunch of uh, people on the left, but in fact, major establishment figures say nuclear weapons are dangerous for the United States. They once guaranteed our security, but now are more of a, a liability. And it's time to do something about that. President Obama certainly believes in that message and is acting on that in the various events coming up in the next few days. And it is an exciting time to be in Washington and be part of the, this uh, larger, quite frankly, worldwide effort to limit the nuclear danger and hope, hopefully move to elimination of them. John Isaacs, thanks for talking with us today. 
Sure, delighted. John Isaacs, Executive Director of Council for a Livable World. Again, their website, livableworld.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Send me your emails. I want to hear your comments. Peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling under.